here we go. Eight chapters, like I did last week, which was seven, and a couple weeks before that, which was five, is uh, just, just press for time. And so what we're going to do is at the beginning, I'm going to do an overview, 30,000 foot kind of overview. As you remember from last week, I'll cover the major things that are going on in these chapters. And uh, it is reminiscent if you've ever flown on an airplane and you're fortunate enough to have the window seat and you kind of look out the windows, you're flying cross country and you notice there's nothing to look at. must be Kansas. And so as you're just kind of cruising over, so we're going to do that exact thing where we're going to look at 30,000 foot overview of these eight chapters. Are you ready? All right, here we go. We have to start actually in chapter 24 uh, where we left off last week. And if you remember, David and his men are in the bowels of this cave. And they're hiding out trying to um, run from King Saul who is out to kill him. And while they're hiding in the darkness, dark recesses of this cave, Saul enters the very same cave where David and his men are gathered. And he enters that cave to relieve himself. And so the da- David's men say, look... David, you have to take advantage of this opportunity. You have to kill Saul. This is your moment. Like, take advantage of it. He's in your hands. But David says, no way. I'm not going to lay my hands on the Lord's anointed. So instead, stealthily, David crawls over to where Saul is relieving himself, cuts off the corner of his rope, waits until Saul finishes his business, and then Saul leaves. David then emerges out of the cave, holding up the corner of the robe and calls out to Saul, who is now gathered with his men, Saul, I could have killed you today. See? But I didn't. So leave me alone. (laughs) I'm not trying to kill you. Why do you keep trying to kill me? And eventually Saul realizes, oh, man, I'm really a sinner. You're really innocent. I'm really sorry. I won't do it again. I apologize. Chapter 25. Saul and his men are out in the wilderness of Paran, and they catch wind that there's a rich man named uh, Nabal who's in a place called Carmel. And he, David catches wind about the existence of this man, thinking that being so wealthy and having such um, stuff at his house, that he might be able to go there with his men and potentially get some provisions that they need. So he sent, David sends some of his men to Nabal and makes a simple request. Is there any way my men and I can get some provisions, some basic things like some food and water? Nabal is not a nice man. And so he replies to David, there's no way I'm going to give you that stuff. Who, the, who in the world do you think you are? I'm not giving you everything I worked hard for. So the men returned to David and said, uh, so here's what Nabal said. And David said, really? That's what he said? Get your swords. Let's go. And so he is going to go defend his honor. And they mount up on their horses. But somehow Abigail catches wind of what's going on. And Abigail is Nabal's wife. Abigail looks in the kitchen, realizes we got stuff. And so she collects as many provisions as she can. And she runs out to head off David to make sure that he doesn't come with his sword and actually destroy them. And she approaches David and says, my Lord, do not do the thing that you're about to do. Here are the provisions that you're asking for. You have to realize my husband is a fool. No, no, no. Literally his name Nabal means fool. And so she's like, he's just a fool. He's just acting his part. And so you can't hold it against him. And by the way, David, you will one day be king of Israel. You do not want to approach the throne with a guilty conscience and with blood on your hands. Don't do this. This isn't good. And so David listens to Abigail. He decides not to destroy Nabal, and instead he recognizes that Abigail was sent from the Lord and that she has discretion. And so he relents from the calamity that awaited. 
chapter 26. Unfortunately, David is out once again in the wilderness and the Ziphites basically rat on David again and tell Saul exactly where he is. So Saul musters up 3,000 troops to find David and to capture him and kill him. Now, David gets wind about this, and so he sends out some spies to kind of see what Saul is up to. And they come back and they report everything that they find. So David understands where Saul and his men are camping. And so they decide in the cover of night that they're going to go down and do something about it. And so David takes a man named Abishai in the cover of darkness down to the camp where Saul and his men are. And they find Saul's tent. And they creep in there. And there's Saul lying right next to his bodyguard named Abner. And Abishai looks at David and says, let's do it. I'll take that spear right there. I'll plunge it through him and pin him to the ground. It will only take one blow. I don't need two. I'll do it. David says, no, 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 we're not going to do that. So David instead steals the spear and takes a water jug out of the tent. And then goes up to a hillside and safe distance away and begins to call out to Abner. Abner, wake up. What you have done is wicked and evil and you deserve to die for it because you are tasked to protect the life of the king and you failed. And Abner is like, <gasps> and David wiping the eye boogers off his eyes like, what, what, what's going on? Why are people yelling at each other? So he comes out of the tent and says, is that you, David? David says, yes. Why are you trying to kill me again? You said you weren't going to do it. And now you're doing it again. And so he holds up the spear in the water jug and he says, behold, my Lord, I could have killed you tonight again. And I did it. So stop trying to kill me. And so once again, Saul promises, you're right. I'm a sinner. You're innocent. I won't do it again. We've, we've done that before. Chapter 28. Actually, chapter 27. So David is not really trusting Saul at this point of his life for good reason. And so he decides he's going to actually leave the land of Israel and he's going to head to the land of the Philistines. And so he goes to the land of the Philistines. He befriends King Achish, who lives in a city called Gath. David then asks the king, why should I live with you? Why don't you just let me have my own little spot and that way I won't bother you. And so King Achish gives him a place called Ziklig. And so David and his men and his families and all that they possess live in this little town called Ziklig. Okay, chapter 28. Meanwhile, the Philistines decide, you know what, we have a really good idea. Let's go attack Israel and let's go conquer Saul once and for all. And so the people of the Philistines gather together and they have a huge army. Now here's the thing is in chapter 27 all the way through chapter uh, 1 of 2 Samuel, it's a back and forth. Like you're going from one side to the next of here's what David's doing. Here's what Saul's doing. Here's what David's doing. And then you're back and forth. So it's all at the same time. It's just you're seeing the two different men and what they're doing. So meanwhile, David's in Ziklag. The Philistine army is gathering to attack Saul, and Saul is freaked out. What in the world do I do? David, who usually fights the Philistines for me, he's gone. I kicked him out. I don't have Samuel anymore because he's dead. I don't have any priests around to ask God what I should do because, you know, he killed them all. So he does the unthinkable. He actually asks his men to find for him a medium, you know, someone that can call up the dead. And so they find one. And Saul goes down there disguised in the cover of darkness, finds this medium in a place called Indoor, asks her to contact Samuel, who is dead. And 
And somehow, in some way, it happens. The lady sees Samuel. She recognizes who Samuel is. Therefore, she recognizes who Saul is, and she's fearful of her life. Saul reassures her, don't worry, you won't die. Just let me talk to Samuel. So Saul asks the question of Samuel, what's going to happen to me? And Samuel simply says, you know what's going to happen. God already told you. And whenever God speaks, you need to listen because his word is true. And what he says is final. And that obviously is not reassuring to Saul since what God said is you're going to die and your kingdom is going to be taken from you and given to David. So flashback to David, chapter 29. The Philistines are lining up, preparing for battle. King Achish expects David to fight alongside of him. So King Achish says, David, you have to join me. David says, I understand that. However, in David's mind, that's a huge dilemma. How in the world is he going to fight against his own people and fight on the side of the Philistines? What is he going to do? Well, the other kings of the Philistines are there and they're saying, King Achish, good to see you. Wait, whoa, hold up. Who, who is that? Oh, that's David. And they said, no, 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 this ain't going to work. Remember David, how they sang about Saul, that he killed 1,000 Philistines, and now David killed 10,000 Philistines? Yeah, that's our brothers. You actually want to bring this man who killed so many of our own people to fight alongside of us? That ain't going to work. So dilemma is resolved. King Achish actually says, sorry, David, you can't fight with us. And David's like, oh, shucks. <laughs> so King Achish sends him back to his town of Ziklag, and that's where we pick up chapter 30. David leaves the Philistine army behind, thinking that a huge dilemma has been resolved. However, they see smoke off in the distance as they're riding towards the town. And sure enough, the town has been attacked by the Amalekites. They burned the town to the ground. They've taken captive all of the belongings and possessions, including the very families of David and his men. The men see what's going on. They fall on their faces, and they begin to weep until they could weep no more. And David says, all right. And he inquires of the Lord and says, Lord, should I pursue the Amalekites and get what is mine back? And God said, go get them. So David mounts up with 400 guys and they go and they get what is theirs. And they fight the Amalekites and they retrieve their family, their children, their wives, and all their stuff. And the scripture says not a single thing was lost. He, received, he uh, captured it all back. Chapter 31, flashback to Saul. Philistines are attacking the Israelites. Saul is in a huge battle. The, the, the war is waging all over the place. It's bloodshed everywhere. And the three sons of Saul die in battle, including Jonathan, David's best friend. Not only that, but some archers badly wounded Saul to the point where he knows he's going to die eventually. And so he calls out to his armor bearer, don't let these uncircumcised Philistines kill me. You run me through. And the armor bearer says, no, I'm not touching you. So, David, so Saul falls on his own sword. The armor bearer seeing what happened, seeing the Philistines approaching, he also falls on his sword and they both die. The Philistines find the body of Saul. They cut off his head. They take his body and they hang it up in a temple. Payback for what David did to Goliath. However, some brave men of Judah from Jabesh Gilead, they heard about what happened. And so they bravely go and they retrieve Saul's body and they bring it back to the land of the, of the Israelites and they give it a proper burial. 2 Samuel chapter 1. David has just returned from defeating the Amalekites. He returns to his home when a messenger comes and tells David, I have bad news for you. The sons of Saul are dead, including Jonathan, and also Saul is dead. 
upon hearing the news, David mourns, he laments, he weeps. And he writes a song, which is typical of David. And the beginning and end of that song reads, Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Such a good story, is it not? I want to encourage you to read it on your own. And there's so much more detail there and so much more coloring that the author gives us that I really encourage you to read some more of it. But let's take some time now and do what I did last week where having given an overview, we're going to circle back and there's a couple of things that we're going to talk about. But let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we approach his word and to hear it read and taught. So God, would you do the very thing that we know only you can do? God, would you speak with us and would you meet with us in this place? God, grant us the mind to help us to understand this story. But more than that, Lord, help us in all that we read and hear to actually believe it. Lord, everything in this world is diametrically opposed to your word and to your work in the world. Everything is against us. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us by overcoming the obstacles to hearing your word today. And God, you would grant us faith. And according to your grace, Lord, you would enable us to meet with you through your word. Lord, we read in this story how fallen the world is, how broken it is, so much lying and deception and death. And Lord, it's not just the world of the Bible that all of that's happening. It's in our very own world too. And so Lord, even in the last couple of weeks, we've heard about some outlandish, crazy things, evidence of the brokenness of this world. So Lord, there probably are some folks who are scared, who are fearful. God, we're mindful of things like threatening people through pipe bombs and bursting into synagogues and shooting to death people. Lord, this world is broken. There's so much injustice and death and chaos and distortion. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us in the midst of all of this to stand strong. To know that as seemingly crazy as this world is, ultimately, one day, the curse of the fall will come undone. Everything which is ungodly, all the hatred, all the injustice, all the death will one day be no more. And so, Lord, that is our hope. And so I pray somehow, Lord, you would give us a glimpse of that hope and that you would reassure us in Christ and you would grant us what we need to persevere well in this world. And God, you would do it because we've asked it in Jesus' name. For his glory and for our joy, we pray. Amen. All right, so what we're going to do is we circle back is we're going to see three things about David that really teach us about his character. So the title of this sermon is The Rise of the King's Character. And we're going to see through David's escapades and experiences how his character is revealed. And the three things we're going to see is this, that David was tempted. And through his temptation and how he responded to it, he was enabled uh, to build his character. And we see more about his character. Secondly, he is in exile, which means he has been removed from the people of God and been removed from the presence of God in the promised land. He did so voluntarily, and we'll see how that builds his character and reveals it. And then thirdly, we see how David is a conqueror. 
And in each of these things, what we actually see is a foreshadowing of what's to come in the person of Jesus. And so as we read about David, what we're anticipating is what do these things teach us about the person of Jesus? And in fact, we see Jesus experienced temptation. How did he deal with it and what does that teach us? Jesus experienced exile. And what was that like and what does that teach us? And then lastly, Jesus is a conqueror. And what does that mean? What does that teach us? And so we'll start with the temptation. David was tempted in three ways. First was this in chapter 24 when Saul comes into the cave and he has an opportunity to kill Saul. He has an opportunity according to the pressures of the men in the cave who were with him to take hold of the circumstances and the situation that he's in and to take for himself action and to kill Saul. Now this is an important thing to realize that sometimes the circumstances kind of turn in such a way that we feel as though we have opportunity to act. But we have to remember David was told that he will one day be king, but he must be patient and to faithfully wait until God orchestrates when that day will come. So David is not allowed to take matters into his own hands and to take hold of the circumstances he's in and to fast forward God's will impatiently. That's not what is happening in David's life. He's tempted to fast forward God's will, but he restrains himself. He doesn't do it, even though his men tell him to. The second temptation is this. David almost avenged his honor. Remember when his men were out in the wilderness and they needed some provisions, and so they send forth um, the request of Nabal to, enable, uh, to, to ask Nabal for some provisions. And, of course, Nabal is just kind of a jerky dude. And so here's what happens. We see this in chapter 25, starting in verse 6. David instructs the men, you shall greet him like this. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have uh, shearers. Now, your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. They missed nothing all the time that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, my young men, find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said uh, this to Nabal and in the name of David, and they waited. Here's what Nabal says. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread, my water, and my meat that I have killed from my shears and give it to the men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back to, and told them all of this. And David said to the men, every man strap on his sword. <laughs> and then David wants to go and avenge his honor. How dare somebody talk to me like that? He wants to get even. That's his temptation. And then there's a third temptation. David is once again alerted to the fact that Saul is trying to kill him. Has 3,000 men that's trying to take him out. So Saul, uh, David sends those spies and finds out where Saul is. They come into the tent and Abishai, standing right next to David, who's a friend, says to David, now's the moment. Make your life easier by simply taking advantage of this moment and kill this man and now become king. God said you're going to become king. Today's the day. But if you notice, the temptation is 
experience what God has promised. But in order to experience it, take the situation into your own hands and make your own destiny. Do you see what's happening? And so we today, those three temptations you and I face every day. Take into your own hands your circumstances and your situation and act on it in such a way that you fast forward God's will. And if people get in the way and they dishonor you, get even with them. But one of the things you need to make sure you do is make sure at all costs you try to figure out how to make your life easy. As though following God's will is like water. You just got to follow the path of least resistance. And sometimes we interpret God's will for our lives in terms of how easy it is. Do we not? Because God would never ask us to do hard things like take up your cross daily and follow him. Or you need to die to yourself. He would never ask that. So that's David's temptation. What do we learn about this? And by the way, I'm totally joking. God obviously asks you to do hard things. In fact, one of the hard things he asks you to do is impossible apart from his grace. All right. What do we learn? Well, two things. It points us backwards to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But David's temptations also point us forward to the person and work of Jesus. So how do these temptations point us backwards? Well, one reason why I know that this points us backwards is this. Now, this is something you need to hear. This is incredible. One-third of all of the references in the Old Testament to the concept of good and evil, one-third of all of the references in the Old Testament to good and evil are found in these three chapters. Do you notice how disproportionate that is? Three chapters out of the entire Old Testament contains one-third of all of the references to good and evil? Somebody's trying to get our attention. And if we think back to, okay, when's the first time we heard about good and evil? It's in the Garden of Eden. And when we go to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, what do we read there? We read the temptation of Adam and Eve. Here's what we read. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you won't surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Do you know what the temptation is? The temptation is by disobeying God, you will know more than you know now. By disobeying God, you will be more than you are now. By disobeying God, you will have more authority and you will have more power and you will have more honor. You see, the temptation is to question the goodness of God by questioning God's word itself. Is God really good? Well, then why is he so stingy about the trees in the garden if he's all that good? If you just disobey him, then you'll experience the really good life. And that's the temptation we all face. Is God's word really true? If God was so good, why does he tell us not to do so much stuff? Think about it. If you just did it, how cool would that be? 
So Adam and Eve's temptation is to take their situation into their own hands. To not trust the goodness of God and the truth of God's word, but to take initiative in such a way that in their ambition, they take hold of their circumstances and they turn it towards their own selfish ambition. And that's exactly what Eve does. She sees the, the fruit of the tree and what does she do? She takes it. Isn't that all sin? Seeing something and then deciding, I'm not waiting, I'm taking. But in the midst of this sin and this chaos and this temptation, God offers hope. In fact, God is addressing Satan himself and pouring out curses upon Satan when he says this. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, Moses is writing for us how God promised the people that one day there will come someone who is a serpent crusher. One who will defeat Satan. Who is born of a woman, which means he's truly a human being. Who will one day defeat Satan, conquer evil, and undo the effects of the curse of the fall. And so at this point in history, because Moses is the writer, people are thinking, got to be Moses. I mean, think about all the miracles he did when he was in Egypt. He's the guy. Well, he's not because he died. Well, now they're thinking, and we flash forward to 1 Samuel, they have this promise in their, in, in their minds that there's coming a one who will do all these great things, who will have authority and dominion. And now all of a sudden you have this powerful warrior king who has lopped off the head of Goliath and who has defeated the Amalite king, or yeah, the Amalite king whose name means serpent in David. And so they're thinking, David's the guy. David's born of a woman, he's truly a human being, he's king, he's royal, he's powerful, he's a warrior. He defeated them, 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 and them. It's got to be him. And so that's what the author is trying to get through our minds is for the nation of Israel, everything is pointing towards David. David, your guy, he's going to redeem you. He is the one that's going to rescue you. But also David's temptation points us forward to Jesus. Do you remember Jesus' temptation in Matthew chapter 4? He's tempted by Satan three times. And each time that he's tempted, he recites a quotation from the Old Testament. And generally when we hear this section taught, we generally interpret it as, you know what? When you're in the midst of temptation, one of the best things that you can do is recite scripture. And as you recite scripture, you will be empowered and strengthened and you'll be able to resist temptation. And I say, praise God, amen, that's awesome. But there's a lot more going on. Because every one of Jesus' quotations comes from chapter 6 to chapter 8 in the book of Deuteronomy. That's the only place he quotes from. And what's interesting is when you go there and you read it, you realize it's actually the, the record of Moses teaching the second generation of Israelites who came out of Egypt. Now why is he addressing the second generation? It's because the first generation, they crossed the Red Sea, then they tempted God, and then they were cursed for their sin and idolatry by wandering in the desert for 40 years until they all died and the next generation came. So in effect, what Jesus is doing is quoting Moses when he's reminding the people, don't mess this up. Your fathers messed it up. Don't you do the same. <laughs> But also what Jesus is doing 
is he's experiencing temptation and he's quoting Moses because he's signifying where Moses, or excuse me, where Adam failed and where Moses failed and where Israel failed, I will not fail. You remember Adam was in the garden tempted and he failed. Moses was tempted to impatience when he beat a rock and various other things and he failed. Israel as a people was supposed to be a light unto the nations to draw them to Yahweh, God, and they failed. But in Matthew 4, Jesus doesn't fail. And because Jesus doesn't fail, we know Jesus to be the new and better Adam. Jesus is the new and better Moses. Jesus is the new and better Israel. When he is tempted and because he does not fail, what he does is he completes God's mission for the world. He fulfills the promises of God and he secures for sinners everything that they need to be made right with God. And in fact, when we go back to Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 11, and we see the last third temptation of Jesus, we see something significant. Here's how Satan tempted Jesus the third time. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left them, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. Do you see the temptation? The temptation is, Jesus, if you bow down and worship me, you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to experience pain. You don't have to faithfully serve people who hate you. You never have to experience sorrow. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to be rejected. You can just take the glory and run. You can be powerful, you can have all authority, you can be wealthy, you can have it all. And you don't even have to suffer while you get it. Win-win. But Jesus refuses the temptation, which means Jesus chooses the suffering. Jesus chooses the sorrow. Jesus chooses the pain. And Jesus chooses the cross. Because he knows that by the cross, through the pain, in the midst of the sorrows, and despite the suffering, what will happen in the end is Jesus, by his shed blood on the cross, will purchase people and he will rescue them from their sin. Aren't you glad he said no to temptation? When we talk about temptation, there's a tendency for some people to think the only people who really know how bad temptation is... Uh, are sinful people. <laughs> and here's what I mean. Let me read this from C.S. Lewis in uh, Mere Christianity, one of my favorite books, one of my favorite authors. I love what he writes here. Listen to this. He writes, no man knows how bad he is until he tries very hard to be good. Hey, yeah. He says, a silly idea is current. And he's writing in uh, 1940s. World War II England. He says, a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in to it. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. 
A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. This is why bad people in one sense know very little about their own badness. Because they have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight against it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the fullest extent what temptation really means. He is, therefore, the only complete realist. That's amazing. Because it's just insightful and flat out true. None of us know how hard temptation really is because all of us usually give in to it. And the only person on the face of the earth, the only human being who has ever lived who fully understands the weightiness of temptation is he who always said no in the midst of their temptation. And that person is Jesus. And so therefore, if we are ever, ever thinking to ourselves, man, I'm tempted and I want to endure and hold up underneath it, where are you going to go to get the resources you need to be strengthened enough to say no to temptation? You can't go to other people who give in all the time. You got to go to the one who never gave in. And that's why Jesus says, come to me who are weary and burdened. Come to me who are heavy laden. Come to me who are thirsty and hungry. I will give you rest. I will give you drink. I will give you food. I will give you forgiveness. I will give you the strength you need to be all that you need to be and how I have commanded you to be. And you can't do it in any other way and no other person. I am all you got. And what's crazy to me is in our world, people interpret what I just said as being narrow-minded. But that is the most loving and freeing, truthful statement any person can ever hear. Nothing in this world will satisfy you. Nothing in this world can save you. Nothing in this world will ever, ever, ever provide what it promises with one exception. Whoever puts his trust in the Lord Jesus will never be put to shame. So it is narrow because it's just one thing, but it's not narrow because it's applied to all. Anyone can come to Jesus that you may be set free. All right, exile. We're on to the second one. Once David has encountered Saul, remember that? He decides that he can't trust Saul anymore. So he voluntarily goes into the land of the Philistines. And what's amazing is he voluntarily exiled himself. Exile, remember, means to be removed from the presence of God, to be removed from the people of God. So David didn't deserve to go into exile. And exile is the consequence for sin and not keeping the covenant. And so let me ask the question, who rightly deserved to be exiled in this situation? Saul did. But Saul stayed in the land where David left. And so David intentionally and voluntarily took upon himself the punishment for sins he did not commit. And this points us directly to Jesus. 
Jesus did not deserve to be crucified as a criminal. He did not deserve to be cursed for breaking the covenant. He did not deserve to be spiked naked and bleeding to a cross. But he did it anyway. And the reason why he did it was so that he would experience death, that he would take upon himself the curse of sin, the consequences of sin, the breaking of the covenant, the just punishment of God. Voluntarily he did so in order that those whom he purchased by his blood would never have to face what he faced. There are some of us in this room who have put our trust in Jesus and we will never, ever have to experience what Jesus experienced. We will never be put out from the presence of God. We will never face the penalty of our sin. We will never suffer death like Jesus suffered because he did all of that in our place. Voluntarily, because he loved us. Are you kidding me? That's amazing. But there's a different kind of exile. There's the horrific, sinful kind of exile where we, by our life's choices and the way in which we live, where we are removed from God. God is so good and he's gracious. And if you really don't want God, he'll give that to you. It's just a place called hell. But if you really want God, he will give that to you. And that's a place called heaven. So what do you want? I just want God to butt out of my life. Okay? Then you will reap what you sow. I I want God to be my ever-present help in my time of need. Great. You will reap what you sow. And we see in Saul someone who is reaping what he's sowing. Saul is experiencing spiritual exile. Remember the nation of uh, the Philistines is coming against Saul. He's just doesn't know what to do. He's freaked out on every turn. He doesn't know what to do. David is gone and Samuel's dead and he killed all the priests and he doesn't know what to do. And so he does the unthinkable. He actually goes to a medium and asks the medium to help him. Now, why is it so bad? It's bad because it explicitly goes against God's law. Deuteronomy 18. Listen to this. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer, which means those who cast spells, or one who inquires of the dead. There shouldn't be any of that in the land. That is evil. And what God says next in verse 15 through Moses is this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses is saying, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. I will raise up for them, meaning Israel, a prophet like you. God is speaking to Moses from you among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to to them all that I command him. And so what God says is there's going to be prophets, but there's going to be one singular prophet that's going to come in the future. 
and you need to listen to the prophets and you need to especially listen to the one prophet in whom God's word will be placed and the commands of God will come forth. You got to listen to him. Now you see the contrast. Let's get rid of the sorcery and the mediums and the idolatry. And you don't need that stuff because you have a sure word from God. That's the contrast. So why is Saul seeking out mediums and necromancers? It's because he wants a different word than the word he got. God spoke, but he didn't like what he heard. Saul knew better. It actually says in chapter 28, verse 3, that Saul put out of the land all of the necromancers and the mediums. So Saul knew better. He knew the good he ought to do, but he did not do it. And in the New Testament, that's called sin. So why does Saul seek a medium? It's because he did not like what God has already said. In 1 Samuel 15, 28, the Lord had already told Saul, the kingdom is going to be ripped from you. It's going to be given to David. Saul says, yeah, I don't know about all that. I don't like that. And so he goes to a medium and he says, is there something else? Is there another word that I can hear that will be better? And so he goes to the medium and lo and behold, in verses 16 through 19 of chapter 28, Samuel, somehow the medium contacts Samuel from the dead. And Saul says, what should I do? And Samuel's like, are you kidding me? And what does he do? What does Samuel do? He just repeats what God had already said. And Saul says, well, that stinks. That's not encouraging. That's not positive. Like you would never hear that on Kayla. <laughs> so I'm going to die the kingdom's going to be stripped from me. My children are going to die and my enemy is going to inherit everything I've, I've worked for. Yeah. What? I'm not giving to this pledge drive. <laughs> but you have to realize, brothers and sisters, this is a dangerous theme that runs throughout Scripture. The theme of God speaks, the people hear, and then they go, uh, I don't know. I don't feel right about that. It feels kind of icky. And we see this in Isaiah 30, verses 9 and 10. The nation of Israel, God says, they are a rebellious people. They are lying children. Children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord who say to the seers, do not see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us, and this is great, speak to us smooth. Prophesy illusions. Don't tell me true things. Just speak to me about fluffy nonsense that makes me feel awesome about myself. So tell me how great I am. Tell me how wealthy I'm going to be. Tell me how healthy I will be forever. <laughs> tell me how I'm going to get that, that vacation home in the Bahamas. Tell me how I'm about to get the new Cadillac. Tell me this, things. But that is not, unfortunately, only in the Old Testament. That's in the New Testament. And here's what Paul writes to Timothy. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. 
in season, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. The question is why? Why is Timothy charged, encouraged, commanded to preach the word of God? Why? Verse 3, because the time is coming when people, and brothers and sisters, do not misinterpret this verse. The people to whom he's referring is not the people in the world who don't go to church. They already don't believe. He's talking about the people in the church filling up the pews who claim to be Christians. I hope those of you that are clapping aren't these people, though. So, <laughs> So he says, there will be people who will not endure sound teaching, but they have, look at this, itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off in the midst. You see, there's so-called Christians in the church going, sin? Ah, I don't like that. Judgment, justice, obedience, love my neighbor? Ah, I don't know about all that. Give me some positive encouragement. Tell me how awesome I am. Tell me how I'm an overcomer. Tell me how I can do all things through Christ and just, you know, come to Christ just for what I want, not for him. But you do remember, brothers and sisters, whatever you come to Christ for, that thing you come to him for is your God, not him. If you don't come to Christ for Christ, then something else is your God. So what do we do about that? We realize God has spoken. Remember, that's the whole thing about Saul. He was like, did God really say? Satan said to Adam and Eve, did God really say? Satan quotes scripture to Jesus. God said. And now in the church, many people are saying, did God really say? And what's happening in the church is many people are abandoning the word of God. And instead they're looking for more revelations, more dreams, more prophets. They must have not read Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. Let's read it together. Long ago, at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. You see that? Many times, long time ago, in many different ways, God spoke to us by the prophets. But, do not miss the but. In these last days, which is now, God has spoken. Past tense, irrevocable to us. How? By his son, Jesus whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much superior to the angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Brothers and sisters, in the Old Testament, undoubtedly, God spoke by the prophets, but we are living in the last days in which God has spoken finally and fully the end of discussion through his son, who is the word of God become incarnate. At this point, we could be go, okay, we're done. Let's go home. Decisively 
definitively God has spoken. That should reassure us more than anything else. That the word of God, which in the Old Testament is about Jesus concealed, but in the New Testament is Jesus revealed, is authored by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, everything we have in the word of God in the Bible is the product of the Spirit. So we don't need to go to the Spirit to ask him to give us more revelation than he's already given us. Nor can we ask the Holy Spirit to give us a revelation which is contrary to the revelation he already gave us. God is not a God of confusion. God is a God of order and truth. This is truth. And in Jesus, we have all that we could ever dream or imagine. If we abandon Jesus, we abandon all hope. So, brothers and sisters, you don't need to ask God for a special revelation. You don't need to ask God to speak to you in a way he's never spoken to anyone before. You don't need all of that stuff because you have the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian. You have Jesus Christ, God come in the flesh. And you have his revealed word for you. And these things are sufficient. All right, last one is this. Oh, oh. <laughs> Jesus is a conqueror. David shows us that he too is a conqueror. What we read is when David is dismissed from the armies of the Philistines, he's raided by the Amalekites. And the Amalekites take his family and all of his possessions captivity, into captivity. So David asks the question, God, should I follow them? And God says, absolutely, go get what is yours. And we read in verses 16 through 19 that David indeed in chapter 30 goes and he finds the Amalekites singing and dancing and rejoicing that they had taken captive all that is David's and his men. David comes upon them and he works them and he retrieves everything which is rightfully his. What does that teach us about Jesus? What it teaches us about Jesus is that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. There are so many people in this world, billions upon billions of people who are deceived by Satan and who can have their eyes opened and their hearts renewed if they would hear the gospel preached to them. That's a call to missions, isn't it? That's a call to be faithful to preach the gospel. Because in preaching the gospel, the lost will be found. The blind will see. And those who have been held captive by Satan and sin will be set free. Let's read John 8. What does Jesus think about his life and ministry? Jesus said to the Jews in verse 31 who had believed in him. I love this. If you abide in my word, conditional statement. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Which begs the question... Am I a disciple if I abandon Jesus' word? I'll let you answer that, you smart people. Verse 32. And you will know the truth by Jesus' word, his truth, and the truth will set you free. What freedom is he talking about? I'm glad you asked. Verse 33. And they answered him, we're, we're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will be free? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You're not captured by some worldly standard. You are captured by Satan in sin itself. 
And I don't give a rip whether or not you are Jewish. I don't give a rip whether or not you got an MBA. I don't care what your zip code is, what car you drive. I don't care how many obedient kids you have or how great at the piano you are. Regardless of your accolades and attributes and skills and everything else that you've ever accumulated, the reality is this. Apart from Jesus, you are a slave to your sin. And the question is, do you want to be free? Do you want to be free from the bondage of sin evidenced by the shame and guilt that you constantly fear day by day by day? Do you want the liberating experience of being set free from a guilty conscience and having your sins washed? Do you want to be free in order to love your neighbor and your family the the way you know you ought to but seem to not be able to? Do you want to be the kind of neighbor and son and daughter and father and mother that you know God calls you to, but it seems like you constantly fail? Do you want the power that has provided you in the person of the Holy Spirit to enable and equip you to be all that God commands of you? If you want that, then you need freedom from sin. How do we get freedom from sin? Verse 36. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Irrevocably, you will be liberated. And I love this in Revelation. We have to close with this. Oh, yeah. When we go turn to Revelation, we see what is God doing in the church? How is God accomplishing victory through Jesus? And we come to a scene in Revelation 5 where the Apostle John sees into the heavenly places a scroll which is wrapped up and it has seven seals on it and it cannot be opened to unleash what God plans to do because there's no one who has the credentials to open it. There's no human being who has ever said no to to temptation through and through. And so John is weeping. And one of the elders says in verse 5, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the connection to David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Where every other human being failed to keep obedience perfectly, Jesus, he succeeded. And so he's qualified. He has the credentials. And so the people sing and the the host gather together, verses 9 and 10, and they sing a new song. Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people. You purchased from captivity. People for God from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth forever. When you think about that, brothers and sisters, here's what ends up happening. The rise of the kingdom of Israel is a foretaste to the rise of the kingdom of God and the person of Christ. And the rise of the King David is really a foreshadowing of the rise of King Jesus. And Jesus has begun. He's inaugurated his kingdom. And he has once and for all delivered us from the present evil age by the shedding of his blood on the cross. Not only that, he's risen from the dead. And so he gives life to all who come to him and trust him. And the spirit is given to us as our deposit guaranteeing what is to come. 
so that when Jesus returns, he will consummate his kingdom and death will be vanquished. No more tears, no more pain, no more sorrows, no more injustice, no more pipe bombs, and no more bursting into places of worship and gunning people down. You feel that, brothers and sisters? That is hope. And because of the shed blood of Jesus, captives are liberated. <sighs> Jesus conquers. Where does that leave you and I? We too are conquerors. But not because we possess the power to conquer anything. Seems like every day we're being conquered. Instead we read this, Revelation 12.10. Oh. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Verse 11. And they, you and I, we have conquered Satan by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. For we love not our lives even unto death. You and I are conquerors by the shed blood of Jesus, not because we possess innate power in ourselves. And how we conquer Satan is to continually claim Jesus is mine. You have no claim on me, Satan. I am his and he is mine. So Romans 8.37, this is our prayer. Let's close our service with this. Let's close it with scripture. Let's leave with this melody on our hearts. Romans 8, in all these things, in our sufferings and temptations and feeling distant from God and exiles and feeling conquered by sin, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through Jesus who loves us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor heights nor depths nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen.